Well, good morning, Seven Mile Road. As we know, we live in historic times, historic times in so many different ways. One of those ways uh, was in some ways occasioned by eight minutes and 46 seconds of devastating and dehumanizing video. This man named George Floyd was pinned down, struggling to breathe by a policeman, Matt Chauvin, with his knee on his neck. And no doubt, most, if not all of you, have seen that really unsettling video. It was not that something new was coming into the mind and the vision of people across this nation and now across the globe, but it is that in a unique moment in history, particularly occasioned by the pandemic that we're currently experiencing and the fact that we were all slowed down and forced to see it in a new and different and fuller way, that we have been ushered into a moment of great unrest as it relates to racial injustice and the role that it has played in American history and plays still today. I've spoken with many of you and have heard from, from many folks the word confusing, that this is a, a confusing time shot through with lots of information that comes from lots of different uh, parties and positions that leave us feeling like, how do I make sense of a moment like this? How do I make sense of the nature of injustice in our country? And as I have talked with many of you and I've wrestled with you about the different articles and stats and things that you've read as, as people that are coming from different sides of the political aisle are wrestling with the current state of affairs in our nation. I just want to say that this week I am stepping into this space in an attempt to shepherd I want to provide a biblical lens as best I am able for being able to, to start addressing racial injustice as the people of God. And so I want to make a few important notes up front in this message that is set aside to help us as a people operate in the current climate and, and be a part of God's solution. Three brief notes at the outset. One, this it's going to be a long sermon. Um, there's just a lot to say, and I don't want to short-circuit it, so you're not stuck in the room. You can pause me as needed, but I hope that you will stick with me till the end. I believe that we need God's Word to breed clarity and light in this area as a people, as a family of God. And so uh, strap in. We're, we're in for the long haul, and I believe it will be well worth our time and our energy. Secondly, I recognize that this is a highly politicized discussion. And I love, I love that Seven Mile Road is not monolithic in its political views. That we have people from the right and from the left that call Seven Mile Road home, and I rejoice in that because God doesn't reside on the right or the left. He is not subsumed and controlled by a political party. He comes from above, which means he equally offends. And it means that his heartbeat is found both in right and left in certain areas because God, there is no monopoly on, on God's heart when it comes to the political conversation. And so I am, I am attempting to, 
to speak to this with precision and clarity where the scriptures are speaking, though I am going to own this fact that it's impossible to depoliticize the conversation that we're about to have from the scriptures entirely. So this is my invitation on this point, is that we would be a people who operate differently because we are under the lordship of Jesus. That we would show each other a lot of grace. I'd ask that you'd show me grace. That we would lean in together. That we would be honest and loving. That we would create a space that is Seven Mile Road where we would be free to disagree about the nuance and perhaps some of the ways that we would approach solutions politically, but that we together as a people would commit to submit to God's word in his heart, particularly as it relates to issues of justice. And so we're going to do our best to wade into highly politicized waters and realize that this is not just a political issue under it, below it, beneath it, in its truest sense. This is a gospel issue. This is a biblical issue. And so we're going to trust God to speak. And then lastly, I want to note that this is not merely a white-black issue. We are talking about historic injustice against black Americans, but I also recognize that I have this great privilege of pastoring a community of faith that's about 25 to 30% Asian American. And in talking to some of my Asian American friends in the last few weeks, I've heard that sometimes it feels like we're caught in the messy middle. One friend saying to me, it feels like mom and dad are fighting at the dinner table, and I'm not sure where I fit in. And in processing this with Peter and praying about and thinking about the hearts and the minds of my brothers and sisters who are Asian Americans, I just want to share a word with you that you are invited into this conversation. We're not just asking, I'm not just asking you to listen as I talk to the white people in our community. I'm calling Christians to respond to issues of injustice, Christians of all background and makeup, and especially to our Asian American brothers and sisters. There's an article uh, written Um, by a man named Larry Lynn that was incredibly helpful as Peter and I were processing. I just want to read you two subsets of that before we plunge in. He says this, We Asian Americans might not say it out loud, but many of us have internalized a racist and reductionist history. We believe that the way to success is to work hard, and we pride ourselves in having done just that. We came to this country with nothing, speaking a foreign language, and we worked hard, we saved money, we achieved the American dream. And so when we look at the status of African Americans, we dismissively assume that they didn't work as hard as we did, and we conclude that they are to blame. He goes on to say this, what many Asian Americans fail to realize is that our success is largely built on the backs of African Americans themselves. After all, if slavery had not existed, the United States may not have been a desirable country to immigrate to. It was through the enslavement of African Americans that American prosperity was built in the first place. And additionally, if it wasn't for the generations of African Americans fighting for their rights before most of us ever arrived, it's quite possible that Asian Americans would not have been as easily accepted as we were. In many ways, African Americans laid the path for our ethnic minority to come to America too. And the reality is that we Asian Americans have unknowingly reaped the sufferings of our fellow American, African Americans. The least we can do is stand with them. And so I would just say this is not a message just to white people though I certainly speak from that perspective, I am laboring to call us all as Christians to ask God, what do you think about justice? And how would your scriptures apply to the current status of racial injustice in our country? And so towards that end, I'm going to invite you to open your scriptures with me to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58, we're going to be studying verses 1 through 12 and laboring to apply that from its proper context into our current context. 
Permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says elsewhere about the scriptures. He says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. We are a people in desperate need of a revelatory word from above. And I'm so thankful that we have it. We would be really wise to pay attention. Isaiah 58, starting in verse 1. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. This is God speaking to the prophet Isaiah, give, issuing him a command. And it says this, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And they ask, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the days of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all of your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and you satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light arise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters don't fail. And your ancient ruins will be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach the restorer of streets to dwell in. This chapter is bold. God comes out with a bold call to his people. And if I had to summarize this passage in a single sentence, what I would say is this, beware of smug piety in the face of injustice. This is God's word of warning to his people when they're confronting injustice. Beware of your smug and empty, thin religious practices that allow you to feel good about yourself while remaining distant to oppression. We must beware smug piety in the face of injustice. In order to make sense of that one statement, I want to make three observations as we work through this text. The first is this. Smug piety and the mind of God as communicated in Isaiah 58 equals religious practice that is a a thin veil for selfishness and oppression and finger pointing. It's a thin veil that serves to protect 
selfishness and oppression and finger pointing. Let's look at this in the text. In verse 1, God says, cry aloud, don't hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. He's saying to Isaiah, you're about to deliver a message that has to come across bold and clear. Do not soft sell this one. You do not hold back because my people have been sinning as a nation. They have blood on their hands as a nation. He says that my people, they need to see their transgression. They need to see their sins. He says they're seeking me daily. They, they want to be close to me. They're fasting and they're saying, God, we're fasting and praying. Why aren't you answering? And then he reveals to them why. He says in verse 3b, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress your workers and you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit. He says, while engaging in this religious practice, I'm fasting and I'm praying and I'm seeking God and I want to be close to him. He says, what you're actually doing in the secret places of your heart is you're seeking your own pleasure. You're protecting yourself. You're allowing oppression to continue because your workers are not being taken care of. And then when any of that is brought to light, he says, and you're quick to quarrel. Later, he calls it the pointing of the finger. He says, you're so defensive and quick to defend your oppressive practices. So you just continue to protect yourself, allow oppression to continue, and then you point the finger and you're defensive. The text has found me out this week. I've been confessing to God, honestly, the moments over the last several years when there have been repeated videos, repeated videos that have caught the imagination of our country, have led to protests in the streets. What I've realized is that when confronted with the death of young black men caught by video. I just want you to know, my, my first gut reaction time and again over the last several years has been, well, there's more to the story. If we just knew that he probably deserved what was coming. I say that to my shame, that it's my gut reaction to defend the structures and the systems that have served me so well. And as a result, there's moments where I think, well, I jump to defense and explanation and going, well, 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 let, let's not get ahead of ourselves. And what I've realized as this, this text is inviting me to be careful about smug piety, to say, well, yes, I pray and I honor God and I'm all about the things of God, but in moments of gross injustice, moments that challenge the system that, that supports and benefits me, I'm quick to defend. I'm quick to seek my own pleasure and to point fingers at, at things that aren't quite right. Uh, and I just say, I, I've heard this quite frequently. I, I want us to be to beware. I want to be Beware of stock answers and quick responses and defensiveness in the face of moments like the one we're dealing with with, with George Floyd. Well-meaning friends are, are telling me about the statistics of what's, what's really going on and uh, saying that, well, you know, it's not really injustice that we're dealing with and that we've dealt with racism in the past, and, but that's part of our past and that we right now, uh, it's really a question of personal responsibility, not systemic evil. That really the issue is, is absent fathers in the black community, which is truly 
a heartbreaking scenario, but it raises the question, if we want to say it's all about personal responsibility and quote statistics about what's going on in black families and black neighborhoods, and it's really just an issue of poverty and personal responsibility and defaulting on what needs to be done, I just want to wrestle together with this text and say, let's be careful not to be so quick to point fingers and to defend. Let's just slow down lay down our defenses and the ways that we want to explain away the uncomfortable moments that we're being invited into. I'm not saying that there is zero uh, credence to all such information. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is beware of smug piety that would prevent you from entering the pain of tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people throughout our history that have suffered and labored in this country. My invitation as we try to lay down smug piety, as we try to lay down our defensiveness, the ways that in this text are described as quarreling and fighting and pointing the finger and protecting ourselves, I just want to invite you into five simple things that would allow us to lay down this smug piety. You, they're not original to me. You may have heard them elsewhere. They're five L's that are a good place to start, but I would commend them to you. The first is this. I want to invite us to be the sort of community, a Jesus community that would listen that would listen. If you survey the Proverbs and you ask, how does the fool communicate? The fool is defensive and reactionary and quick to speak and focused on making his or her point. The wise person is slow to speak, listens, trying to make sure they've understood all that is happening before they're speaking into it. Would we be the, peop- the sort of people that are humble enough to slow down and listen. Secondly, would we learn? Would we engage? If ever there were a time where we need informed Christians that are thoughtful and well-read, now is a time because we are dealing with a blight on our society that is historic and present injustice, and we need Christians that will understand what's happening. We need to be people who will learn. Will you read good books Engage and listen to long-form lectures and presentations. Resist clickbait cotton candy and letting just headlines be what inform you, but dig in and learn. In conjunction with this sermon, we've made available to you a resource list that we're inviting you to begin to engage with. Would you pick a, a book or two, a lecture or an article, and engage, and listen, pay attention. Let's be a people that are making sure we're learning about our history as a nation. The history of the church, which has been complicit with racism in this nation, that we would learn about our own past and make sense of it together. Third, if we take those first two steps, the third one will come naturally. We will be a people that lament, that we know what it is to come undone in the face of this gross missteps of of injustice in our past. We need to be a people that know how to break and weep over the plight of so many in our nation throughout history and currently. If we listen and we learn, we will lament, and that will pave the way to the fourth one, which we will be able to love, to really love people, to love people that are of a different political bent than us, of a different background than us, of a different experience than us. Listen, I'm not making commentary about your political views or what you think ought to or ought not to be legislated or done. All I'm saying is, can we have a Christian response that would say, stop talking, learn, break, love people, 
before you speak or do anything, would, you, would we be the sort of people that would engage there? And then out of that place, we will be able to live out something different, the fifth L, that once we're actually loving people that are different than us and think different than us, we will be able to live something out that is different and better and richer and deeper than the stuff we're getting in the public square, which quite frankly is shrill and angry and embarrassing as we see people trying to give quick fixes to what is a deep heartache and hurt. You see, our smug piety has to be laid down. This hiding behind a, a, a prayerfulness that allows us just to kind of stay distant and say, well, I'm going to stay about things of God and I don't need to engage in political issues. When, when in actuality, God's calling us into issues of justice and saying, hey, j- just don't, don't hide away in protecting your own, your own pleasure and allowing oppression to continue while pointing fingers and being defensive. We need to lay down smug piety. Secondly, vibrant piety, the opposite, godly piety that we're going to see in this text. If if smug piety is a thin veil for our silence and our oppression and our self-preservation, vibrant piety attacks injustice and poverty. That's what real, robust worship does. Vibrant worship attacks injustice and poverty. Look back at verse 6 and 7 with me. Is not this the fast that I choose, says God, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, and when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? He's saying, look, here is injustice and here is poverty, and real worship is aggressively addressing both. Saying those are are biblical issues. Those are godly issues. That is the church's responsibility. That's the people of God. That's what we're called to do if we're really worshiping God. We attack injustice and we attack poverty. And so God's fast is different. It's not piety for piety's sake. We don't just sit around and go, oh, I'm so worshipful and prayerful, but then never actually engage in the real issues of the day. Real piety is in the face of God going, oh God, what's your heart for this? And now I'm going to be active in approaching it, dealing with it. He paints the picture in verse six, this idea of slowly taking off the yoke. He says, I'm loosing the straps. I'm untying the knots. I'm removing the yoke and saying, you may go free. But then I love that the last verse, the person is already free in verse six. By the time we get to the point, he says, you let the oppressed go free. But then the idea is I've removed this yoke and it's sitting over here. The person has gone free. And then the last statement is then you come back and you burst to bits the yoke that's on the ground. He's going, I'm talking about attacking injustice to the point where people are free to go and the tools that formerly imprisoned them and mistreated them, I'm now going to go to work breaking those things apart. That's godly worship. That's what God has a heart for, is that we would be that sort of people. People that deal with systemic issues and personal issues. Because it's not just the systemic oppression that's being addressed, but now it's this, this poverty that's being addressed, saying, take the poor into your home and view the naked as your own flesh because someone that's suffering, that's part of your national identity and that's part of your, the people of God, that you step in and you say, this is my responsibility. This is the call. And I, I've... I think that some of us in response to this would say something along the lines of, well, yes, but haven't we already done that? 
I've had well-meaning, thoughtful Christians say to me, yes, but 1964, equal rights. We fought this battle. Ours is a land of opportunity and freedom. And so we are certainly past that. Allow me, if you will, to quote uh, a thinker from a different stream, a man named Malcolm X, who was interviewed in 1964. He said this in trying to make sense of have we healed from the wounds. He says, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and you pull it out six inches, that's not progress. If you pull it out all the way, that is not progress. Progress is healing the wound that the blow made. And they haven't even pulled the knife out, much less heal the wound. They won't even admit that there's a knife there. Now, whether or not we agree with Malcolm X's ideology and the way that he's approaching this, certainly we would have questions about that. But, but in this moment, there's a prophetic word on the lips of this man, this realization that if we are going to experience healing from historic injustice, we actually have to make sense of how deep does the wound go and what is healing going to take? I just want us to consider that, that our history has impact on our present day, and we are not a people that have just accomplished justice. Let me scale this out in four simple ways. Four ways that the wound has been, been forged over the years. My friends Steve Besner and Blake Wilson race, recently did a presentation on, along these lines. I want to share a few of the highlights with you. They said financial exploitation. When we pay attention to financial exploitation in our country, this is a significant reality on how deep the wound goes in the black community. Different from any other community that has immigrated to, to these states because of the depth and the length of that history. For, for 246 years... Slavery was shaping the culture of of this American experiment. 246 years from 1619 until 1865, slavery and an entirely free workforce is the means by which American prosperity was secured. The reason that the white man in America became the most historically wealthy class and people was because of systematic Oppression and dehumanization of an entire race of people that were being bowed, that, that were being uh, packed into boats and brought to our shores. 246 years, followed by 99 years of segregation and Jim Crow laws and ways that they were continuing to be uh, financially exploited. When you consider our history, it's only the last 54 years and the scope of these hundreds of years that there's even been on the books some semblance of equality. Though financial exploitation has continued even beyond 1964 in things like redlining, redlining being the agreement of banks and local governments to not give any loans to black individuals in certain areas. And so financial exploitation has been the story of our history together, and it has continued beyond even 1964. Secondly, educational deprivation. It was illegal for a slave to learn how to read for 246 years. Slaves were not allowed to learn how to read. It was, it was a strategic decision to keep slaves ignorant. And then, after having been set free and in our recent days, it doesn't change the fact that schools in the same district are not equally funded, that there are school systems that are majority black that are consistently underfunded and struggling, that the ability to... to, to be educated and to take strides towards something different continues to not be equally available. Three, geographical separation. 
When urban planning was taking place, the black neighborhoods were most consistently placed in large cities in the floodplains and in the least desirable areas. It led to, to frequent flooding and dis, uh, disturbance and struggle, and that combined with the financial redlining caused these neighborhoods where black people were crowded in to slowly uh, come apart because they didn't have the loans and the capacity financially to continue to build up their communities. And then as, to add insult to injury, now present-day gentrification is oftentimes white people coming into these neighborhoods run down, getting real estate at a great price, and finally building up what was never able to be done by those that were in the land to begin with. Fourthly, theological misrepresentation. The evangelical thought over uh, the last several hundred years has, has a, with a s- slight of hand, caused a bit of damage in this area. Uh, and I'd say maybe even more than a bit, but just let us recognize that the overly individualistic approach to our faith does damage to the way that the scriptures actually talk about us as a people. That we will stand before the judgment seat of God as individuals based off of our profession and faith in in Jesus or not. But this doesn't mean that we operate as as individuals that stand entirely, entirely alone apart from the people that we are around or the history that we share. That in fact, God sees us as communal. Lamentations 5-7 tells us that our fathers have sinned and their, their sin and their transgression is heaped upon us in Lamentations 5. They're dealing with the ramifications of the sin that have gone before. 2 Samuel 21, you can read about a famine on the land and David is going, God, why is there a famine? And he says, because Saul and the generation before you mistreated the Gibeonites based out of national pride. And he said, that's why there's a famine in the land. Or even this passage, Isaiah 58, did you hear it? He says, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. I have to believe there were many well-meaning Israelites in the midst of this that were going, well, I haven't oppressed anybody. I haven't mispaid my employees. They're going, hey, 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 not me. Just like we may be tempted to go, I have black friends. I've never harbored a negative thought against a black person. So maybe there's racism out there, but I'm not. That's not me. Because of our overly individualistic evangelical viewpoint, we have done violence to the text that looks at us as part of a system, that looks at us as part of a people and part of a history. That racism has been the fabric of our society and we are living in a day of reckoning. You cannot sow the seeds of sin and oppression and injustice for hundreds of years and never pay the piper. Like there will be a day where we look around and we go, why is this all so broken? And if we're surprised, it's just because we're not paying attention to our history. Oh God, would you please be at work in our hearts. Like make us a people that would listen and learn and lament. You see, vibrant piety as opposed to smug piety, it attacks injustice and poverty. It pays attention to how deep does the wound go and what is it going to look like to pursue healing. Well, lastly, vibrant piety secures divine blessing and generational healing. 
Verses 8 through 12 paint this picture of what will happen if we would be a people that worship God the way he wants to be worshiped. He says this, verse 8, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Your healing will spring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Man, that sounds good. You will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, I'm right here. If you take away the yoke from your midst and you quit pointing the finger, you quit speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and you satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and he will satisfy your desire in the scorched places. He will make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like springs of water whose waters don't fail, and your ancient ruins will be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Do you hear it? The promises that come with this light. Light is one of the thematic elements. It's breaking forth. Our gloom becomes like the noonday. Healing. God's presence and power hearing and answering our prayers, even as we are experiencing generational healing. This is all evidence of the gospel. This is what happens when God's character comes to bear on a community, on a people. Because quite frankly, this is what happens when Jesus shows up. Jesus ultimately is the one that fulfills and satisfies true, vibrant piety that Isaiah is calling people to. He didn't come in smug piety distance from the communal sin and injustice, but he came and he laid himself out. As the text says, he poured himself out in active, vibrant piety that attacks injustice and attacks the impoverished spirit by saying, I will pay the price. I will do the work. Put it on me. As Jesus bled and died, he was showing a better way, showing what does it look like to deal with corporate, collective guilt and sin. At great cost to himself, he paid for it so that we could be delivered into light, into healing, into wholeness. As we soak in this message, I'm not becoming political. I'm just preaching gospel. If we believe the gospel, we will care about light and healing and justice breaking forth from the person and the work of Jesus. We will want to see generational healing. Doesn't that sound beautiful in verse 12? I I am actually convinced that if the church will take those first five L's to heart, if we will listen and learn and lament and love and live it out, a sixth L will come along. We will lead. The voice of the church has zero impact in this conversation right now because we've just been so complicit with it for so long. And I long for us to have a voice that cuts through all of the political drama and speaks with the authority of the scriptures in a way that we could be repairers of the breach. We're living in a moment, a moment that's been gifted to us, entrusted to us. It's a pivot. Oh, that the church would speak out, that we would be a part of revival of of the authority of Jesus being seen as beautiful and different. He doesn't operate in political parties. He comes differently. He pours himself out in the name of healing the breach, of drawing men and women to himself and showing them a better way. I long for the church to be those sorts of people. Will we be those sorts of people? I want to someday say to my kids, look, look, it's different than it used to be. Because the grace of Jesus is transforming our hearts and empowering us to attack injustice and poverty and deal with it. And so, 
Lastly, I just want to let you know where we're headed. Uh, something called United We Stand is a movement that's emerging in our city. It's actually beautifully emerging out of the Houston Church Planning Network, of which we're deeply involved and invested. About 200 churches, both black and white, all across the city are leaning in and stacking hands to be a part of a pivot, to be a part of a moment where the grace of Jesus would break in and offer a different sort of healing and a different sort of hope. And so we've made five commitments to be a part of United We Stand. I just want to catch you up on these. One, we're going to steward this sermon. This fall, there will be a four-week sermon series that's shared by the pulpits of those hundreds of churches all across the city. We'll be preaching from the same text, the same messages, all across the city in black and white churches as we continue to wrestle with the text and let it shape us. In preparation for that, would you lean into the learning, engage our resource list, begin to prepare your heart so that when the time comes that we're discussing this in house church and we're learning from the text that we'll be a people ready to engage in honest, open conversation, showing one another grace and growing together as we do, we're going to steward the sermon. Secondly, we're going to leverage legislation. This, this group, United We Stand, is working with the police force and with local lawmakers, and we want, to, we want to be a part of healing in those ways. I don't know what the answers are, but I know that the church wants to have a voice that's, that's speaking a better word into the system. Three, we want to commit to community. The invitation of all the churches that are being, being a part of United We Stand, they're saying, hey, would you be willing once a month to have someone of a different color at your dinner table? Would you commit to that? One meal a month to start forming community, to have honest, real conversation, to listen and to learn and to love and to lament, to be a part of this journey, but with skin on. Let us not just respond to headlines and distant realities. Let us be gospel people who commit to community. Four, we want to be people of peace, meaning we want to tend to and care for our police officers, to pray for them and to be a part of the healing, to be a part of the reform that needs to take place and the places that need to be reformed, but also to help support them and strengthen them and to, to help them to connect with the community that black and white churches all across the city saying this, let's stack our hands and let's pray for our police officers and pray for the good and hard work that they're engaging in and help it to be a healthy system here in Houston where communities and police officers are working together in unity and harmony. And five, we're committing to common confessions, confessions that we're going to be writing that speak to these issues that you will be hearing in the fall as we continue to wrestle with this. So brothers and sisters, my invitation to us is to lean in, to show one another grace, to realize that this is fraught with tripwires. And we know that sometimes we'll feel offended or we'll offend, but what we are laboring to do is say we are going to operate in a distinctly Christian way under the authority of King Jesus, believing his word, believing the gospel, and then consistently saying that has impact in our world. We are going to lay down smug piety in the face of injustice, and we're going to be a part of healing the breach together by the grace of God and for his glory. Would you please pray with me? Father, we need you. We need you on every level. We need you to need you to need you. And I pray that even now, as hearts are trying to respond to this word, all the different places that it hits us, I pray that we would be a people that are quick to submit to the word. And where I'm out of alignment with your heart or your word, that you would hem me in and that you would help us to make sense of that. But wherever your word and your truth is finding purchase in our souls, help us to be a people of, of repentance and belief, 
and conviction and action. Make that true of us as a people. God, we want to be a part of the ongoing healing that you desire. And we thank you that in Jesus, we have the the power and the capacity to do that. Jesus, we're asking that your kingdom would come in the city of Houston as it is in heaven, that it would come uh, in this world as it is in heaven, and that we would be a part of it. We look forward to what you're going to do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.